From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we'll speak with Chelsea Parsons from the Center of American Progress on Gun Legislation and the Second Amendment. And after that, Dr. Leon Hader will join us to discuss the implications of the recent terrorist attacks in Paris. That's next on The Public Morality. Since the nation's inception, guns in some manner have been part of the American narrative. The existing constitutional understanding is that Americans have a right to bear arms. While gun ownership is in decline, the number of civilian-owned firearms in the United States has America at almost one per person. It is the true outlier among developed nations. Joining me today is Chelsea Parsons. She is Vice President of Guns and Crime Policy at the Center for American Progress. Prior to joining the Center for American Progress, she was counsel to the New York City Criminal Justice Coordinator, a role in which she helped develop and implement criminal justice initiatives and legislation in areas including human trafficking, sexual assault, family violence, and firearms. Why don't we start with the Second Amendment as sort of a, a, a basis for our conversation? And I'm reading the version that was authenticated by the states. A well-regulated militia being necessary to secure a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Between the strict constructionist crowd and those who believe the Constitution is a living document, between those two poles, where are we with gun policy? Well, the Supreme Court has stated very clearly that while the Second Amendment does provide an individual a right to possess guns, that right is not unlimited, and it is subject to reasonable restriction. And so that's, that's what we know about the Second Amendment right now. And so that's the universe that we live in, and that is where we are attempting to develop smart, common-sense policy solutions that prevent easy gun access by individuals who pose an increased risk to public safety, while at the same time making sure that law-abiding folks are able to exercise their Second Amendment right. And those two things are not at all inconsistent with each other, and that's what the Supreme Court has told us. Well, where do you think we ought to be, specifically? Well, I think that there are a number of things, you know, I mean, clearly we need to do a lot better in this country in terms of our gun policy. I mean, the, the levels of gun violence that we experience in this country are unparalleled by our peer nations. And so clearly we have a problem, um, and it's a problem that there are a number of clear um, answers to. So, for example, we know that states that have closed the background check loophole that allows people to buy guns without a background check have better outcomes in terms of gun violence. We know that that's a policy that works. Um, and so there are a number of other policy solutions and common sense laws that we can pass that will help prevent access um, to firearms by individuals who pose an increased risk. Um, and, and that's where we need to be working right now. You know, certainly the Sandy Hook tragedy obviously shook the nation's conscience. But the fact is, when it comes to death by guns, isn't America averaging almost a Sandy Hook per day in terms of the number of people? Absolutely. We, on average, have 33 people murdered with a gun in this country every day. Um, 
we have on average 88 people in this country who are killed by gunfire um, by all intents. So that would include murders, um, accidental shootings, and suicides. So absolutely, we have, you know, people dying at a rate like that was seen in Sandy Hook every day. And frankly, what happened in Sandy Hook um, is the kind of most horrible tragedy that we can think of, right, that captures the attention of the media, that captures the attention of of the public in a way. Um, But really, when we're talking about gun violence in this country, what we're talking about is the daily toll of this violence and of these deaths in many communities around this country that never gets any attention. Um, And that's really where we feel that the impact of some of these policies that we advocate for will have the biggest uh, difference. You you raise an interesting point in that we will talk about, obviously, Sandy Hook and well, we should. We will talk about when the tragedy, the recent tragedy uh, in Roanoke, Virginia, or the police officer days after. We will talk about that, but that seems to be the only time we are talking about gun violence. And and doesn't that sort of put it, put those conversations, albeit well-meaning, sort of as aberrations rather than something that's part of a rule? It is. And, you know, it, it's, it speaks to, you know, one of the curious things about our culture, which is that, you know, we – and, and part of it is the media and part of it is just kind of, you know, how we jump from tragedy to tragedy or issue of interest to issue of interest, that it takes something of a level of, of horror like – elementary school students shot down in their classroom or like an execution on live TV to keep a sustained interest um, in an issue that really is a daily struggle for many, many Americans in many, many communities that have outrageous levels of gun violence and that have kids who can't walk to school without being afraid that they're going to be caught in the crossfire. And so there is a disconnect between the the real lived daily experience of gun violence in this country and the type of um, horrific incident that draws public attention to that to that issue in this country. Is there, in your opinion, too much or not enough emphasis placed on the mental health aspect of, of the gun control debate? So I think the mental health issue is, um, is frankly a little bit of a red herring when we're talking about gun violence, because what we know is that the vast majority of people who experience mental illness are not violent. They are not more likely to commit acts of violence than the general public. Um, and in fact, they are more likely to be victims of violent crime themselves. So what happens is when you have these horrific tragedies that happen that, that get a lot of high-profile attention that involve an individual who does have a mental health history or does seem to have a mental health problem, it makes it seem that what's driving gun violence is a breakdown in our mental health system. And really, that's not true. You know, certainly there is much room for improvement in mental health treatment and services in this country. But if we want to address gun violence and if we want to reduce Um, you know, the numbers of people who are both fatally and non-fatally shot in this country every day, we're not going to do that by focusing solely on mental health. We're going to do that by focusing on our laws and policies that allow easy access to guns um, by all kinds of folks who shouldn't have it, not just people who uh, suffer from a mental illness. And we also have to be really careful about, you know, making sure that we're not 
further stigmatizing um, individuals who suffer from mental illness, um, which unfortunately is what often happens when you have these high-profile shootings. I want to go back to something you, you sort of touched on the word, which was culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems as though just that word that you have a rural perspective, you have an urban perspective, and those cultures and the challenges are, 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 are very, very different, and they're really starkly divided on this on, on guns issue overall. Am I right? Yeah, I think you see that. I mean, you know, there are – it's interesting because when you look at public opinion research and you look at polling, um, support for – Specific common sense policies like background checks um, is off the charts, you know, more than 80% of Americans support that, right? But then when you kind of get into some of these other issues, you, you see that there is a real divide in terms of people who believe that guns make you safer and people whose lived experience is that more guns means more people get shot and killed. And and there is that tension in this country that comes to a head when we actually try to make any real progress in strengthening our gun laws, which is this kind of this kind of almost instinctive reaction by by folks who feel that guns make them safer that any effort to try to prevent gun access by um people who pose an increased risk will ultimately mean decreased access to guns by everybody. Now, on, on that note about uh, about division, uh, is it fair to say that based on the polling that there, there can be a divide at times between NRA membership and the leadership on actual gun policy? Absolutely. That is 100 percent true. Um, There is a real, you know, the NRA um, was not originally created as a political entity. It was created to be a membership organization for gun owners and for sport shooters and hunters and and folks for whom um, gun ownership is, you know, part of their culture and, and a hobby and a sport. And, you know, in the late 70s, the NRA took a turn toward the political and at that point started to have more, um, do more in terms of uh, political advocacy. And so what you have seen is the NRA um, kind of on the political end tacking further and further to the right and taking more and more um, conservative and extreme positions on uh, gun law and gun policy issues, um, where you see the membership of the NRA not necessarily following suit. And so, you know, if you talk to gun owners, gun owners overwhelmingly – support the idea that you should have to have a background check before you're able to buy a gun because gun owners know better than anyone else the harm that can be caused by reckless or careless gun ownership. And so you're absolutely right. There is this very um, stark divide between the political leadership of the NRA um, and, and the side of the NRA that is doing all of the election spending and the campaign spending and the membership kind of grassroots of the NRA um, that is much more reasonable um, and, and kind of takes a much more common sense position about a lot of these issues. And actually, to your point, um, Gallup polling that I saw Right after Newtown, 75% of NRA uh, members supported universal background checks. Nearly 90% of the country supported background checks, but it fails to pass in Congress. That's right. That's right. And it it really boggles your mind. I mean, you know, I I really can't think of any other 
issue that you could poll in this country where you would see numbers that high in terms of support. Um, and yet, you know, there, there's, like I said, this, this real disconnect between kind of in the politics of it. Well, 90 percent, I mean, to get Congress, uh, get the American people to agree on 90 percent, we're, we're pretty much talking about walking grandma across the street. I mean, yeah. so. Yep. Well, well, let me, I'm asking you to speculate now, but in your opinion, is the NRA's overarching interests the rights of gun owners as they profess, or is it more geared to the profits of gun manufacturers, in your opinion? The NRA is a mouthpiece of the gun industry, and, and that's really, I think, what drives this disconnect between the views of the membership that they are supposed to serve and their positions on, on policy issues and their campaign spending and, and, and this tack to the right. I mean, they really are um, advocates for as few limitations on gun ownership and gun possession as possible because that helps drive, you know, more gun sales. So, but I could also see at the same time, I mean, if you just Google most powerful lobbies in Washington, the NRA is going to be in the top ten. Oh, absolutely. And, and so that fuels the perception, perception, I think, by some that we have too many elected officials that are beholden to NRA money, and they become sort of this fortress around the gun lobby and to protecting the policies they support. And and, and, that, and and that gets sort of to a sort of, I guess, defeatist attitude, and, and a lot of people just throwing up their hands. And how do you address that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think, I think to be honest, that is one of the most challenging things that people like myself who work on the gun issue face, is that kind of, you know, to, to really resist that defeatism. Um, but, you know, since since the tragedy in Newtown, um, the the NRA has a real um, challenge, uh, and, and we finally have a lot of oomph and a lot of money being spent on the other side of the issue to really um, kind of push back against the NRA's power in Congress. And so we have groups like um, Americans for Responsible Solutions, which was founded by um, Representative Gabby Giffords, who's doing a ton of work um, really trying to, to start to chip away at the influence of the NRA. Um, the same for Mayor Bloomberg's group, group Every Town for Gun Safety. You know, groups like this are really putting a lot of money into the issue, um, which frankly is, is how we're going to, to influence um, some of our lawmakers to kind of get them out of the pocket of the NRA. And so, you know, the, the other thing that is interesting about the NRA is they are perceived as being this all-powerful lobbying group that, that you can't win against. But if you actually look at their success rate when it comes to political spending, um, they, it is quite low, meaning that they spend a lot of money in races that they lose. And so a lot of the work that we do is to really push back against this narrative of the NRA as this this powerful force um, and really, you know, open the curtains on what they are, which is uh, a bit of a paper tiger. I want to I switch gears uh, for, for a moment um, and talk about um, what needs to be done to, and this is more of an urban issue, but, mm -hmm. uh, but the unregistered firearm is, is really problematic in urban America. What, um, what do we need to do there? So, a foundational problem um, with that is that it is part of federal law, um, and this has been something that the NRA and, and others have lobbied quite hard for, um, to prevent the government from creating any kind of registry of gun owners. And so there are a lot of limits in the law in terms of what kind of information um, 
FBI is able to keep, what kind of information ATF is able to keep in terms of, of gun sales. Um, but, you're, you know, the issue of kind of how guns make their way into urban communities where they're then kind of passed around in, in secondary and informal markets is a really um, crucial question, and it's a really complicated problem. And it's one of the things that we, um, you know, it, it, it's one of those issues where because we have um, a patchwork of state laws, and so each state kind of makes its own decisions about what kind of laws um, relating to guns they're going to enact. You have the situation where you have a state like Illinois that has very strong gun laws, um, neighboring a state like Indiana, which has exceptionally weak laws. And so we know that a lot of the guns that end up being used on the streets in Chicago are coming from Indiana. And so it creates a real challenge for law enforcement in Illinois to figure out how to cut off that pipeline from Indiana and some of the other states in the South with weaker gun laws, which contribute to violence in that community. And so it's a, it's a really significant challenge trying to figure out where are the choke points for some of these trafficking um, pipelines um, and then figuring out how to most effectively shut them off to reduce the pool of guns that are in, in these communities and that are passed around. I mean, could, could something – I know New York is uh, – I, I I'm not sure exactly the law. Is, it escapes me right now, but I know New York has sort of done something that but there is, there is um, I guess, some sort of uh, – fine and or uh, jail time for for uh, transporting an unregistered weapon. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, is just, could we strengthen the laws in that way to make it, because I also know in, in, in sort of urban culture, in pockets of urban culture, there is a, uh, I guess, a no-snitch culture. Mm-hmm. So could those laws, could that pos- possession of, of, of unregistered weapons be more punitive? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, in in a number of a number of states, and New York is one of them. Um, you know, New York has enacted a very tough um, law for people who possess who illegally possess guns in the state, and and I think it's a I think it's a mandatory three and a half year sentence for that. Um, one of the things that has been one of the policy proposals at the federal level that um, Senator Gillibrand um, has been working on for a number of years is to strengthen the federal law um, with respect to gun trafficking. So there is actually no federal crime of gun trafficking right now, which means that um, federal law enforcement has to kind of do some legal gymnastics in terms of figuring out how to charge people who are the the leaders of these networks that traffic firearms. And so there's there's a lot of room for improvement um, at at the federal level as well as at the state level for enacting stronger laws that really target the traffickers who are illegally uh, bringing guns into the community. What about those? What can you say to those? Uh, maybe nothing that. That um, who who see what you and I would call com- uh, common sense gun policy as the first step to this sort of uh, big brother government seizure of all guns. Is, is there anything uh, that you can that, that you can say to them? Oh, I mean, probably not, right? <laughs> I, I, I mean, the answer is you know that's not what we're what we're trying to do. I mean, it's really not. I, you know, we are at this point in our country past the point of saying. Um, 
we need to ban all guns. Um, you know, we have the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court has definitively said it protects an individual's right to own guns in certain circumstances. So, you know, that is the world that we are living in. And, and all of the, the work that we do, um, you know, to try to pass these kind of more common sense, um, stronger gun laws really is intended to reduce easy access to guns by individuals who really we all agree should not have access to guns, people with certain violent criminal histories, um, domestic abusers and people, you know, uh, abusers who are under restraining orders, um, you know, people with certain severe mental illness who, who pose a risk to themselves or others. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to do. And there are a number of provisions already in the, the federal law right now that would prevent the, the slippery slope toward gun confiscation. And certainly, you know, something as simple as just a background check prior to a gun sale um, is, is not a step down that road. What do you say to those um, who, who say that we already have enough laws in the books? Um, well, I would I disagree. Um, you know, we have some laws on the books, and and the, some of the laws that we have are quite strong. Um, but there are a number of loopholes in our laws right now that contribute to the high levels of gun violence that we see. Um, you know, the biggest one is the background check loophole that allows people to buy guns. Um, through a private sale uh, without a background check and without any questions asked. And that means that people can go to a gun show or people can go online from their sofa and buy a gun from a stranger and go meet them in a McDonald's parking lot and pick it up. And there's no checks at all to make sure that this is a person who's allowed to buy a gun. Um, and so we need to close that loophole up. There are loopholes um, at, in both the federal and the state law that allow dangerous domestic abusers who we know pose a heightened risk of killing a woman when they have access to guns. Um, and there's a lot more we can do to strengthen up those laws and make sure that they don't have that access and that we are better protecting women from being killed by guns. Um, so there is, there's a lot that's left to do. If we, if we had enough if we had the right system of laws already in place, we wouldn't be seeing the, the levels of gun violence that we have in this country. In, in the context of, of, of laws, the book, let, let me ask you, um, how effective has the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, otherwise known as ATF, been on this issue? How effective are they? So ATF is in a rough spot, uh, and the reason that I say that is that ATF has kind of been the perennial whipping boy of the NRA and of its allies in Congress, and so the result of that has meant that ATF has um, a stagnating budget. They don't have nearly enough resources to be able to um, successfully fulfill the mission that they have, and so what happens is when they are when they fall short in that mission. Um, they become a very easy target for um, for folks to say, see, we, you know, we're not even enforcing the laws that we have. But the reason that we sometimes fall short in that is because ATF has been hamstrung in a number of ways, both in its budget in terms of um, a number of very restrictive riders that have been put on its budget through the appropriations process that, process that limit what it's allowed to do um, by, you know, preventing the agency from having a confirmed director for seven years. Um, and so, you know, ATF is, is 
full of agents who kind of dedicate their careers to doing this work and really feel deeply and strongly about the mission of preventing gun violence in this country, but they they are just held back in so many ways by these limitations that have been placed on it that, that the agents really are in a tough position. Um, so I think that there is a lot of room for improvement in terms of federal law enforcement um, in how ATF and FBI and, and the Department of Justice are, are doing this work. And you recently, I think, I think, I believe in the spring, you uh, co-authored a uh, report. Is that is that correct? That's right. That's right. So what we did was we did we took a really deep look at ATF. We we spent you know nearly two years on this project, um, and and looking really at kind of how the agency evolved over time and and all of the different um, restrictions and and kind of shortcomings that the agency has. And you know our conclusion is that in order to have the strongest federal law enforcement response to gun violence in this country, um, what needs to happen is for ATF to be merged into the FBI. Um, to create one centralized federal agency charged with enforcing gun laws and regulating the industry. And, and our proposal is that, that by doing that, it would help alleviate a number of the issues that ATF has faced over the years. Well, now, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm going I'm to risk it, but I'm about to flunk a uh, civics course right now. Okay. Um, ATF started with the Treasury. Correct. Now they're in Homeland Security. No, now they're at uh, Department of Justice. The, the Department of Justice. Yeah. They were at Homeland Security. No, they, they never, never went through Homeland Security. Okay, okay. Yeah. They're in Justice, and you yes. and you want them to, and you're recommending that they now be moved to under the so, uh, under the auspices of the, of the FBI. Correct. Still within Justice, but just under the auspices of the FBI. Right. Okay. So then my question would be, wouldn't that, and I see your point, but wouldn't that cause some internal trepidation along with some pushback from those at the ATF? Yes. So I think that it would, um, you know, doing any kind of agency merger like that would be difficult and there would be kind of a culture clash between the two agencies and you'd have to figure out how to do it. And, you know, it, it would come with a lot of kind of practical challenges. Um, our view is that the problem of gun violence in this country is so urgent um, and the shortcomings of federal law enforcement and, and of ATF in trying to deal with that problem um, are so great that it warrants a big shakeup and it warrants a big change. And so, um, you know, our view is that by putting ATF under the FBI, um, even going through the growing pains that that would entail, ultimately would have a better outcome. On, on the totality of spectrum of guns that we've discussed uh during this time, is the glass half empty or half full? I kind of say it's half full. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because while, you know, those of us who work inside the Beltway and work in D.C. and, and are up on the Hill um, get very worn down dealing with some of our, our representatives who seem to not be listening to the American people about this issue, um, when you look at what's going on in the states, you see a really different picture. And what you see is that, Progress is being made at the state level in the in the state houses and, and in the governor's mansions, um, and states are taking action here and are passing new laws. And you know, even in some red states, passing some new laws. Um, the state of Louisiana passed a great law last year uh, to limit access by domestic abusers to guns. Um, you know, we've had a number of states close the background check loophole. Most recently, Oregon. Um, and so, there's a lot happening in the community and in the states um, to, to make progress on the issue. And, and I think what we're going to see is as more and more states 
um, and more and more communities um, demand action. And as more and more states start passing these laws and, and live to tell about it and don't, you know, get voted out of office um, and see the support of the voters and, and of the American people for these kinds of policies, that will necessarily start to filter up to our leaders in Congress. And so, you know, I think that, you know, our movement for stronger gun laws is stronger than it's ever been. Um, it is, you know, it's been a challenging summer with with these these incidents that we've seen with, the you know, the horrific shooting in Charleston and with the movie theater shooting in Lafayette and, you know, with what happened last week in Roanoke. Um, but at the same time, you see – you know, more and more people really being fed up and really taking that frustration and turning it into action. And so I think that we're we're going to we're going to keep chugging away and I think we're going to make some progress. And I want to thank you, uh, Chelsea Parsons, uh, for being on the public rally today. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. That was Chelsea Parsons, vice president of guns and crime policy at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Coming up, Paris. Where do we go from here? Next time on The Public Morality, we'll speak with Bill Leonard, church historian from Wake Forest University School of Divinity about religious liberty. And after that, Chris Scroll will join us from the LGBT Democrats of Guilford County to discuss North Carolina's Senate Bill 2. Next time on The Public Morality. Originally, we had planned to have Professor Giovanni Perry talk to us about the economic impact of immigration on the American economy. But given the recent coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris, we decided to turn our attention to this tragic episode. We will air my interview with Professor Perry in the upcoming weeks. To discuss Paris and its implications is Dr. Leon Hader, a global affairs analyst formerly of the Cato Institute. Leon Hader, welcome to The Public Morality. Let's begin with you sharing us if, um, just some of the brief origins of how ISIS came to being. Well, ISIS is basically a radical uh, Sunni uh, movement, uh, an Islamist uh, movement uh, devoted to uh, uh, establishing uh, Islamic State uh, in the Middle East and, and beyond. Uh, uh, it emerged, uh, I think, as a result of uh, uh, the growing split between uh, Sunnis and Shiites in the Middle East, uh, uh, a process that uh, evolved uh, for quite a few years, especially since uh, uh, the U.S. invasion uh, of Iraq that uh, really ignited uh, uh, the first, uh, you know, bloody conflict between uh, Arab Sunni and Arab Shiites. Uh, in the region, and then it spilled over into uh, other parts of the Middle East, including to Syria. Uh, and the movement um, you, um, basically developed as, uh, um, uh, as a result of, of the, this uh, uh, growing resentment on the part of uh, many, Su many Arab Sunnis uh, in Iraq and in Syria. In Iraq, uh, because the Arab Sunnis, as you know, lost the power there 
uh, after uh, Saddam Hussein was ousted and the uh, majority Shiites uh, now control the government. And in Syria, because uh, in Syria a minority of uh, offshoot of Shiite Islam, Alawites, uh, represented by President Bashar Assad, uh, control the country. And uh, uh, many groups, uh, some of them more moderate, some of them more rad radical, uh, uh, launched an insurgency against uh, Assad and eventually failed. So ISIS, uh, which is also called Daesh in Arabic, uh, uh, exploited this you know, growing resentment among uh, uh, the Shiites in the region, and uh, the Sunnis in the region, I'm sorry, and, uh, and, and, and gradually took over parts of uh, you know, Syria and Iraq, uh, which, which it controls today. It's uh, quite a large territory of about uh, the size of England, I would say. And uh, in addition to that, they are, uh, they, you know, they have satellite group in, uh, groups in Africa, in Libya, in Yemen, and as we see now in uh, Europe also. So, um, and it's, uh, I, 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 as I said, uh, basically a, a, a political movement based on radical Sunni uh, principles that uh, is now uh, contrary to earlier prediction that uh, you know it's kind of a minor uh, a player in the Middle East it's now becoming a much more powerful one so through your lens uh, sir as a uh, global affairs analyst beyond the obvious um, tragic loss the significance of the recent uh, Paris attacks, put those in the context for us, please. Well, I mean, in many respects, uh, um, you know, we are having since 9-11, uh, uh, some uh, argue that, you know, this is a sign or reflection of uh, a war between civilization, between uh, Islam and the West, uh, there were many other uh, terrorist acts uh, perpetrated by other groups uh, uh, connected to Al-Qaeda uh, in Europe and uh, not in the United States after 9-11. And, uh, uh, you know, those tend to be quite, um, you know, you can argue that in terms of uh, casualties, you know, people like to say, uh, well, you know, more people get killed in car accidents in New York than in Paris and so on. But there is no doubt that the images of uh, such terrorist acts and the way they impact the daily life of people, uh, it's quite devastating and uh, forces the governments in the West to respond, you know. And uh, we saw that after 9-11, that led eventually to the invasion of Afghanistan and to the war uh, in Iraq that really uh, transformed the balance of power uh, in the world. And I think that uh, this is probably another defining moment. I think you're going to see uh, both changes uh, in the uh, international balance of power, uh, probably uh, growing cooperation between uh, the United States, uh, uh, France, and even Russia in uh, fighting uh, radical Islam. Uh, I think you're going to see finally uh, uh, that the Europeans who are much more affected by you know what's going on 
in the Middle East, because there are strategic backyard, if you will, uh, are going to get more involved uh, directly in the region, uh, uh, which uh, in some ways uh, development like that affects them directly and are more sensitive to that than the United States. You know, we don't have any uh, serious uh, uh, case of Muslim terrorism in the United States. We don't have Muslim, uh, hundreds of thousands of Muslims flooding uh, the United States uh, from the Middle East. So it's basically a very much a European problem, uh, French, German, and so on. Those are very wealthy countries. And it's time that they'll, uh, you know, build their own uh, defense budget and uh, start uh, protecting their interests in the region instead of waiting for us to do the job for them. Uh, because I don't think Americans in general now, uh, uh, notwithstanding all the rhetoric that you hear, are uh, interested or are willing to launch an, you know, a new military intervention in the region. So I think it's going also to, uh, in addition to changing the international balance of power to some extent. I think it's uh, going to force the European to start uh, also uh, uh, debating and discussing uh, what to do about uh, uh, the uh, continuum, you know, flow of uh, Muslim immigrants into Europe and uh, what to do about it. And, you know, it's, it certainly plays into the hand of the more uh, xenophobic uh, uh, nationalist forces in France and so on want to restrict and even deport uh, Muslim immigrants. So it shifts against the political balance of power in many of those countries to the right. And I think it's going to have a similar effect, not the same on uh, American politics. I think it's probably uh, going to play into the hands of uh, you know, people like uh, Donald Trump and others who want to uh, put more restriction on illegal immigration and also, you know, create a sense of, you know, nationalist uh, kind of attitude uh, that uh, uh, usually uh, tends to uh, uh, favor the political right. Uh, and more specifically, as you can see now in the election campaign, uh, uh, you can expect, you know, we were all uh, thought that the debate is going to focus on uh, Social economic problems, uh, you know, social economic inequality, and so on and so forth. I think the debate in the campaign is going to uh, shift to uh, uh, more to national security uh, issues, and again, that's going to favor some candidates over others. Well, I want to touch on something that you just raised. Um, if you could. What are the differences as they currently stand with, say, surveillance measures uh, that Europeans use uh, to protect their citizens from terrorism compared to those with what's going on here in America? Well, I think in general, um, because of uh, historical um, um, reasons, uh, culture, um, and, and legal uh, um, uh, constraints or lack of them, Usually European government, and, and especially country like France, West Germany, uh, are more tolerant of, uh, you know, uh, of the government uh, uh, getting involved and, uh, you know, tapping phones or the Internet, uh, you know, something like the Patriot Act. Uh, I think you would have seen less resistance uh, uh, in 
Trump, for example, than in the United States. We have, you know, it's a very unique uh, political culture with constitution and mm -hmm. uh, first amendment and so on and so forth, where, which, uh, uh, you know, makes it much more difficult for uh, the government, uh, uh, even under, uh, you know, after 9-11, to uh, pass draconian measures uh, 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 that uh, will resilience. I think uh, in Europe, uh, you know, it would be much more easier to do that, as I said, especially in France, uh, which has a tradition of, uh, you know, a strong government and so on. I mean, they just, you know, the guy, uh, Hollande, President Hollande, just uh, got them to adopt uh, a state of emergency, for example, uh, for several uh, days and it might be extended uh, for a while. I mean, it's the I don't think that after 9-11 after or even something worse than that, that any administration uh, have been able to, uh, you know, uh, get Congress to support uh, a state of emergency and uh, curfews in uh, the major city. Although we had something like similar to that, I would say probably uh, in Boston uh, after the second, you know, the marathon, and uh, mm -hmm. which you know uh, there was a similar um, condition, I think, followed and because of what happened in Boston after the attack. So, again, in general, the Europeans are, um, as I said, have less constraints in terms of uh, pushing forward, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, measures uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, that will include surveillance on, of, you know, private uh, individuals and uh, companies and now, uh, let me just follow up with that because one of the it seems to me one of the great challenges of the West is immediately following a terrorist attack is, is to find that balance between keeping its citizens safe but not going overboard by whittling away its democratic traditions. Uh, how how would you see uh, Paris or France, for example, um, straddling that line? It's it's very very difficult um, and. Um, one of the reasons is that if you take, say, World War II, um, you know, we know when the war started and we know when it ended. You know, there was a period uh, in which uh, the American government and other governments in the West uh, uh, basically uh, imposed a state of emergency and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, censorship um, and, uh, um, you know, even restriction on um, Human rights, uh, you know, uh, detaining, detaining uh, suspected spies, and so on and so forth. So, for a lot of things that wouldn't have been done uh, during uh, peacetime. But at least we knew, as I said, when the war started, and we knew when it ended. So, you know, there was a sense that, you know, after we win the war, uh, you know, things are going to go back to normal. Uh, with this kind of war, we don't have that. I mean, it's not clear. Uh, how long this war is going to take and uh, if it will ever end, uh, you know, what does that mean, you know, war on terrorism and so on. So it's very different, you know, there was a, you know, we were able to, the administration and Congress passed the Patriot Act and other uh, um, um, restrictions after 9-11, some of them have been removed by now, but Again, you know, there is not going to be, again, pressure, you know, to strengthen the FBI. And, and 
uh, it's just kind of playing by ear. You know, you don't have a sense of uh, uh, how long it is going to take and uh, when we can lift all these restrictions. So, um, you know, it's just a dialogue, I think, that is going to take place, uh, continue to take place between uh, in this country, between the American people, Congress and the administration and the media. And, um, you know, we'll never be in a point in which we'll be able to say, you know, this is it, this is the restriction, uh, there's not going to be any more, and it's going to continue until uh, the war terrorism will end. Uh, if anything, as you know, the Obama administration even uh, uh, decided not to use the term war on terrorism anymore and uh, in order to, you know, create a sense of, you know, this is... Nothing more than, you know, we're looking for criminals, we'll bring them to trial, and, you know, uh, we don't really need to, there's no state of emergency here, it's almost like dealing with uh, the mafia, say. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I don't, you know, I, I think this is just going to go uh, on and on, and uh, will force us to debate and discuss this issue, and uh, it's very difficult to just come and say, this is it, and this is what we need, and this is going the way things are going to be until we win this war. I just think that there will be back and forth. I think there will be uh, a lot of uh, uh, political backlash. Uh, uh, you know, people will be opposed to some measure, as we saw with uh, Snowden. And, you know, it's going to, um, uh, you know, lead some people to uh, take action against it. Uh, so, you know, it's just going to uh, uh, an ongoing story that uh, will be with us for quite a while. Well, what I, what I hear you saying, and to some regard, uh, uh, Leon, is that there, there's obviously an assumption of risk when you live in a free society. Absolute safety, we know that's not attainable unless we're willing to, what, give up a part of who we are in a society. Is that, yeah. is that, is that right? Yeah, no, I uh, look, uh, don't forget that what's happening now, and it has to do not only with terrorism. I mean, you can talk about uh, uh, Facebook and other uh, uh, social media. Uh, I think the technology has been changing in such a dramatic way uh, at the same time that this is, you know, this terrorism uh, is happening. And, that you know, it's this intertwining of these two development makes it much more difficult for us to come up with uh, uh, coherent uh, policy proposal. I mean, uh, during the Cold War, we basically had telephones and, uh, you know, mail, and uh, that's it, you know. And, you know, there were some rules about, uh, you know, if you can open mail, if you can just tap into phone conversation and so on. Now we have a totally different world and uh, with the Internet and, and so on. And, uh, it uh, you know, it's very even difficult to uh, – one of the – uh, rules uh, in the past was that the CIA cannot, uh, for example, uh, uh, go after, uh, investigate uh, American citizens in the United States and so on. But again, the when the interland, the, the lines between uh, uh, the United States and the rest of the world become blurred, and uh, um, you know you listen to uh, uh, you, uh, you are you tapping into an emails between. Uh, a non-American citizen and an American citizen. Can you do that? Can you not do that? So I, I, I think, you know, we, one of the things that we have to count on is that uh, our representative in Congress and the media uh, 
and our government official will be committed to you know these principles and whatever they'll do uh, they'll uh, take action that is based on needs and not just an attempt to increase the power of the government and restrict the freedoms of individuals uh, again most american again it's so complicated uh, you know to uh, uh, you know the average american doesn't understand uh, you know the technical issues involved in the internet and um, and by the way, most Americans, uh, like it or not, you know, uh, accept. Uh, I mean, I don't see any uh, people uh, uh, deciding to cut their ties to Facebook because Facebook can actually monitor uh, some of your uh, activities and uh, uh, find out, you know, what you buy and where you go and so on. Uh, I personally don't like the idea, but, you know, I'm still on Facebook and I'm still on other social media in which uh, there are, uh, you know, this type of surveillance that is done made by corporations, you know. So it's, it's you know, we live in this world where things change in a dramatic way, and um, as I said, we just have to count on our representatives and um uh, uh, media and other uh, forces in society to continue to, you know, monitor all of that and uh, and, and find out uh, when uh, the government uh, is going to uh, uh, the extreme in, in terms of uh, restricting our freedoms. Well, Leo, what I hear you saying, uh, talking with Leon Hatter here about, about terrorism, what I hear you saying is that we don't mind giving up some of our Fourth Amendment rights, as long as there's a direct benefit from us in terms of our shopping, our Facebook, or but other than that, then we have a problem with it, as long as there's a direct benefit. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the reasons, I, I was actually in a conference in Palo Alto yesterday, uh, which focused on, on this issue, so there were a lot of people there who were involved in cybersecurity, and, and one of the arguments that you heard, that, that is indeed the case, you know, that uh, what happens is that... Uh, the government has to announce and at least tell the uh, Congress what it is about to do, uh, let's say the Patriot Act. And, uh, you know, so this is immediately, you know, uh, published uh, in the newspapers. Everyone knows about it. And, uh, you know, uh, some people opposed to that move and so on. Many of the social media is done, I mean, it's like when you sign sometimes, from, you know, when you get like from Apple or from other companies, you sign an agreement, <laughs> I agree, you know, you put that X. Most people don't read that, uh, the, you know, that uh, agreement, and uh, which includes all kinds of things that if they did read it, uh, they would probably be surprised, you know, in terms <laughs> of the power that the, the company uh, will have over them. But they are willing to do it. And I think, by the way, most opinion polls, as far as I know, uh, suggest that most Americans, uh, most of the time, uh, are more inclined to give up their freedoms in, in times of uh, national emergencies, like after 9-11. I, I think there was wide public support for the Patriot Act, for example. Most of the opposition comes from, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, li liberal groups and civil rights organizations and so on, and uh, people like Snowden and others. Uh, but most Americans, I think, uh, in general, are... Uh, are willing to live with it because uh, I think, you know, one of the arguments that I heard yesterday was, is, you know, most Americans say something like, what do I have to worry about? You know, I, I'm not a terrorist, so if the government listens to uh, my conversation or reads my email, uh, they won't find anything uh, 
that will uh, lead to my conviction or to my arrest and so on. Uh, but they might end up, uh, you know, finding someone who is going to uh, uh, launch a terrorist act. So I think Americans in general, for better or for worse, I mean, it depends on your position, are more inclined to uh, give up their freedom when they feel that they are under threat. And I don't doubt that these images on television and are, uh, you know, have a huge impact on uh, the public psyche, uh, uh, certainly in Europe, but also in the United States. And uh, and and it, and it does, uh, uh, you know, allow the the government to have more flexibility when, you know, they come up with all these uh, 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 different programs. Uh, as of now, I really, you know, as I look around, I don't think there's been any. Uh, such a dramatic shift, even with the Patriot Act, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, the government uh, is still restricted uh, in its ability, you know, to have power of surveillance and so on. But uh, we have to continue to be um, uh, vigilant and uh, make sure that, uh, you know, uh, uh, because, you know, the, the tendency by the government is if they don't feel that there are uh, any counterbalance forces operating, they tend to expand their power, you know, until they feel that they, uh, someone is stopping them. So we have, we have to be careful about it. And I do hope that, you know, the, the only place that, you know, Congress has to be the, the main forum in which uh, this debate takes place, and as well as in the media. And, uh, and uh, hopefully it will uh, evolve in a way that, is aligned with, you know, the American Constitution and values. Well, since you mentioned um, Congress, that's a perfect segue to just briefly talk about politics in the few minutes we have left. Um, where's the line between responsible critiques, asking tough questions, versus using, say, for example, the uh, the recent uh, attacks in Paris for some sort of political gain? Where, where's that line there? Well, to be honest, you know, it, it did come out, um, um, it, you know, after the Paris attacks. Uh, a lot of people wrote about it, our uh, politicians in Washington, especially those running for the presidency, uh, uh, tried to exploit it, uh, you know, for, for uh, different reasons. Uh, um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, exploitation... Uh, ugly exploitation is one thing, but there is no doubt that the issue that we are discussing uh, uh, is political. So I think there are it's very legitimate for uh, politicians and candidates to uh, discuss, for example, uh, whether uh, President Obama's policy in the Middle East uh, or President Bush's policies contributed to. Uh, uh, the mess in the Middle East and created a vacuum that allowed, you know, ISIS to emerge and uh, what should have been done or what could be done in the future in, in order to deal with it. So, uh, and the other issue that I think is relevant, uh, again, depending on your position, is the issue of immigration. You know, should, is, should we put more restriction on immigration because of security reasons and others, or shouldn't we? So, you know, those are, uh, you know, I don't have any problem with people raising that issue uh, and uh, for example there's a debate now over whether to allow uh, uh, the Syrian immigrants to uh, enter into the United States uh, I think that's a legitimate debate uh, and you know you can come up with different ideas uh, 
Uh, I don't think that's an exploitation of, of, of what happened. It's just an attempt to put it in context and come up with uh, policies that uh, will prevent uh, things like that from happening in the, in the future. And earlier in our interview, you, you stated uh, that um, you saw a possible shift from, say, um, social economic issues to, to national security. Uh, going forward in, in, within the presidential debate, I'm sorry, going forward in the presidential debate, what would you like to hear from, from uh, can, presidential candidates on both sides of the aisle? What, what are some of the things on the international scene would you like to hear, would you like to hear them talking about it and, and how? Yeah, I think what is important, uh, and I think one of the problems with, uh, uh, I, I personally uh, uh, supported the, poli the foreign policy agenda of the Obama administration. I think that uh, all things considered, it was uh, uh, quite effective, at least in preventing the United States from being drawn into a new military conflict. But the problem with it has been, uh, as we saw, we are saying now, it has been too. It's a muddling through. It's been too reactive to events. Uh, there was no a coherent strategy uh, uh, that you know uh, President Obama uh, seemed to be following. Uh, you know, just kind of ad hocish moves from one crisis to another. I think what I would like to hear from uh, presidential candidates, and I think Hillary Clinton is giving a speech today is a clear uh, and coherent uh, you know, foreign policy uh, doctrine or grand strategy uh, that would, uh, you know, this issue of terrorism and uh, other issues will be integrated. Uh, uh, the, the main question is uh, uh, when and how do we use the American military force? Uh, and, uh, you know, because, uh, for example, if you take China, uh, U.S. forget about terrorism. U.S. relationship with China. Again, we seem to be moving, you know, this in reaction to events. You know, if the Chinese uh, uh, are building, you know, artificial islands in the South China Sea, we are opposed to that. And you know, but in the long run, this, you know, China, unlike ISIS, is a, you know, a military superpower. And if we are going to have uh, clashes with them, uh, like uh, you know, th they can eventually generate in degenerate into a world war three, a real world war three. Uh, uh, so we have to decide. I want to hear from candidates. You know, what should we do in, about China? Should we engage China? Should we uh, contain China? Uh, sh uh, are we willing to go to war in order to uh, uh, prevent China from? Uh, uh, exerting its influence in uh, the South China Sea or not. Those issues have to be discussed uh, as well as uh, the issue of uh, terrorism, but it has to be discussed as part of uh, a grand strategy, that uh, foreign policy doctrine that each candidate has to present instead of just, you know, bashing uh, President Obama here or uh, um, expressing support for his policies. Uh, again, reacting to what he is doing, that he's not projecting leadership and, and so on and so forth, which might be the case, but you have to explain uh, how would you do it different and, 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 and to come up, you know, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about uh, and discussing in my writing, what is really U.S. Uh, strategic interest in the Middle East today? You know, it's like an autopilot. We seem to take for granted that, you know, the U.S. has to be in the Middle East and, you know, protect the oil 
sources and blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is that the U.S. does not receive most of its oil from the Middle East. Uh, many of your listeners almost take it as an axiom that the U.S. is dependent on oil from the Middle East. That is not the case, and it's, gone, it's less now than it used to be in the past. You know, there are other issues. So why are we willing to spend you know, trillions of dollars uh, uh, fighting wars in the Middle East uh, now? Uh, the, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. We are not dependent on oil from the region. The European powers who de actually depend on oil, the Middle East and oil have enough resources to uh, take care of their own interests. Why should Germany have, uh, um, you know, three months of summer vacation uh, uh, and, and not spend a lot of money on defense? Well, we, we, do, we basically protect them, you know, the free riders, so to speak. So this is the type of uh, debate that I wish to take place. I'm not sure it will, but uh, uh, because, you know, some of this debate, you know, the uh, – you are allowed, unlike in this show, you know, you can speak more than, uh, you know, three minutes and so on. So people just come up with lines and uh, and, and news bites and so on, and that's and that's um, you know not very constructive. Well, that, that but see, that's why we're we're we are for will forever be on national public radio, Leon, and not on MSNBC or CNN because I would have had to cut you off. I know, you know. I know. <laughs> I love this thing. You know, yeah. I. Uh, I learned from, uh, if you watch uh, uh, Carly Fiorina, she's genius in terms of, uh, she never stops talking, you know, so, <laughs> you know, she talks like for seven minutes and you can't, you know, you can stop her, you know, and she, and, and that allows her to dominate some of these debates, you know, because the minute you stop for like a second, you know, the moderator can interject his view, and that's it. You know, so. But Leon, but unlike some of our elected officials, you ha you have things that are important to say. But before before I let you go, can you tell um, uh, the listeners uh, where they can find some of your writings? Yeah, I mean, if you click my name, at, uh, uh, you can probably get access to my articles uh, in the Huffington Post, for example. Uh, in the national interest uh, nationalinterest.com which is the website of the national interest magazine i also publish in the american conservative magazine uh, uh, so you know um, you uh, just by doing that you you can get access to my writing and if you suffer from insomnia uh, <laughs> just start reading it and <laughs> things will turn out fine uh, fall asleep <laughs> Leon, Leon Hader, I want to thank you for being on the Public Morality today. My pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.